Hej och välkomna till Magasin 3. Jag heter Liv Stolz och jag arbetar med program och pedagogik. The topic for this evening, can life be art? Can life situations and experiences form a new medium for art? Our invited guest, Roy Brand, approaches this subject through artists such as Tino Segal and Marina Abramovic, who abandon the usual and traditional art object and attempt to shape life through direct encounters in which the encounter and life itself constitutes the art. This evening's lecture will surely bring to mind Tino Segal's exhibition here at Magazine 3 in 2008, curated by Richard Julin. Roy Brand is a lecturer of philosophy at Bessalel Academy of Art and Design. He's also the director and chief curator of Jaffo 23, a center for contemporary art and culture in Jerusalem. He's the editor and translator of books, including Philosophy in a Time of Terror, Dialogues with Habermas and Derrida, Love Knowledge, The Life of Philosophy from Socrates to Derrida, published by Columbia University Press in 2012. He currently works on the book Life Art, on the stylization of life in culture and in art. Welcome, Roy Brand. Thank you. Thanks very much for coming. This is an amazing opportunity for me. I mean, I first want to thank everybody that has uh, helped me come over. Uh, the people of Magazine 3, first of all, David Newman, uh, Liv Stoltz, uh, Ricard, Tessa. This is, uh, this is a just a great opportunity to think about a book in progress. What I'm going to present now is really thoughts uh, that I collected over a course of a few years, thinking about the connection between life and art. I call it in one word, life art because I think uh, this is part of the problematic, is not to uh, introduce a split at the very beginning, but to a certain kind of a conjunction between those two words where there is an interesting tension that might come out. Interesting tension and interesting uh, relation between those two dimensions of life and art. Basically, I'm thinking about practices that engage or transform life immediately by means of art. Now, this has nothing, it's really not something completely new. I think it was in the original word for art in the Greek, techne, that already had this kind of uh, artistic transformation of life. Art was always about a certain kind of transformation of life from within life itself, by means of technology, therefore techne, but also by any other means that are man-made. So anything that has a man-made transformation of life was included under the name techne, which for them was art in the very general sense. So I think I'm coming back here with uh, this subject to something that's really, really classical, to think about art as a kind of a transformation for life. I know this is coming back or recurring or returning, this uh, emphasis in art, but I think it really is going back there, so I'm interested in that connection. Now, on the other hand, we have uh, 
more and more um, activities that uh, have life as a certain kind of object for transformation. That includes stem cell research, it includes cosmetic surgery, it includes attempts to manipulate life on the DNA level, on a very biological basic level. All of those, I think, are in the background for something that I, I wish to discuss. I will concentrate on art and in a few examples for art uh, that is doing that, but I think in the background of that we have a certain kind of a, a trend maybe, uh, a movement, a shift, whereby life, this very fuzzy, unexplainable thing, life is becoming for us, for everybody, an object that we can work on. So suddenly you have life becoming a medium for work, a medium for artistic work. It, it's like painting, it's like sculpture. Now we have life and we can shape it, we can manipulate it. There's something new about this, there's something frightening about this, but of course there are many interesting potential. So uh, I want to talk about that as a background. What I'm interested mostly is uh, not so much technological innovation or ideas from stem cell research and cosmetics, but more or less a certain kind of a phenomenological aspect of that attempt to shape life, to manipulate life. And what I mean by that is uh, how can we locate ourselves in the midst of life in a way that enables us to frame it to reflect on it, and then maybe also to shape and transform it. So a certain kind of a feeling of life, or in the classic sense, an art of living. How can we return to that tradition of an art of living and bring it back to the present, make the feeling of life something tangible, and therefore something that we can work with, something that we do something with. Okay, this is all by means of, uh, of background. In art, I think what uh, is the immediate... Um, precedent for uh, the theory that uh, I'm coming from has to do with uh, what uh, Nicolas Boyot called uh, relational aesthetics. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this term. Uh, okay, I'll say a few words about that uh, and then about the slides that I'll show. So relational aesthetics came out of in basically in the 90s with a group of artists that uh, attempted to really not create objects but create situations between the audience, the visitors. And what was their focal point was not so much the personal experience of a, of a visitor facing an object, but the kind of interpersonal relations that are constituted in the artistic environment, so in the gallery or in the museum or any kind of an art space. That became the focal point. So the relations between the individuals rather than an individual and an object. There are a few artists that uh, Nicolas Boyot elaborated that was uh, with a specific exhibition that was at the Palais de Tokyo and then later on in a book that's called Relational Aesthetics. One of them is uh, Gabriel Orozco that you can see here, a Mexican artist. And what Gabriel Orozco is really doing is intervening in certain kind of real-life situations. This is a marketplace in Brazil, and he's placing an orange on top of the stalls in abandoned marketplace in Brazil. And by this very gesture, he creates a certain kind of a you can say, a mini-revolution in the everyday, something like tiny changes that kind of expose the relationship of exchange, the relationship of tourism, the relationship of first world looking at third world. And of course, this is a documentation of the act itself. Another one of those slides, again, Gabriel Orozco, uh, you have, you know, an island within an island. So you can see this before 9-11. You know, it's really collecting, it's just 
abundant material, making a little bit of a transformation so that we notice where we are. I mean, if you walk by this and then suddenly you are uh, you, you revealed in a certain way, in, a different, in, in another way to how the city operates, what the structure of the city is. This is in a supermarket, another kind of a mini revolution in every day. He's placing little cans for uh, cat food on watermelons. So this is called cats and watermelons. Again, a cat food within other cans of food. I think th this is really, you know, it's indicative of the kind of work those people were doing, this relational aesthetic, the relational artists were doing. It's, it's a work that is intended to somehow shift the usual coordinates of our everyday so that we are suddenly, and we notice something different. Suddenly something is happening to us, and this is in real-life situations. Suddenly something is, is weirdly is happening. So the context, the normative context of how we usually operate is revealed by means of this miniature transformations, little revolutions. I think it also had to do with the fact that what kind of an effect art can have on life now. So abandoning big ideologies and kind of sweep transformation of everything all together in one swipe to those kind of mini attempts to do tiny little things that would transform how we see life and how we operate in life. Another one of those work is uh, a lemon uh, chess. And I bring with it the slide of uh, Marcel Duchamp who is playing chess in front of the big glass. And I think Marcel Duchamp is obviously one of the precedents for that kind of an attempt to, to fuse life and art together, to make a certain kind of a revolutionary art that's no longer just creating objects, but creating relations. Duchamp was famous for, I think, at that time, trying to uh, leave the world of art to just become a person. He wanted to reject art altogether, and he started to play chess. He was really good in chess and won some competition. But everything he'd done was somehow inframed as art. So when Duchamp was playing chess, it was a performance, Duchamp playing chess. It couldn't be just, you know. So again, he came back to art. He was forced, in a way, to come back to art. So I'm interested in this kind of transformation. And even when you're attempting, as an artist, to leave art and to do something else, everything that you would then do would be a work of art. I think there's a, there's a line of artists that are interested in this kind of a way of abandoning art. I mean, Duchamp, I think, is, is probably one of the biggest ones there, but, uh, you know, Gabriel Orozco was interested in that, and I think many others that I would mention would, would be those that are, in a, in a way, try to stop being artists and start being just real people, but they cannot really do that because everything they do is inframed as art. So this is a little bit about relational aesthetics, I think, as the background for this. Um, maybe that's more familiar. Jans Henning, uh, Turkish Jokes, this is in Oslo. He also did it in uh, Copenhagen. What he's doing, it's, it's, it, those are things that don't come off very well in pictures, so I'll have to explain. What you see there is a, there's a speaker that plays Turkish jokes in, in, uh, in common places, in public areas, in different places, in different cities. And what that creates is that uh, the tiny little community that's Turkish workers, that is usually uh, not really seen, is almost invisible to itself and also to the country that they're living in, suddenly go past this uh, square in the middle of the day and there are a few people who laugh. And those people who laugh are those that got the joke and the, the jokes are those that play in the, in the speakers. So suddenly you have a mini community of Turkish workers who reveal themselves to themselves as being invisible in that square. He did that also with Arabic jokes in different places. Again, those are printed on posters. 
Another interesting example for me that uh, it works in the background for this relational aesthetics is uh, Raimundos Malasuskas. He's an artist curator who commissions artists uh, to create immaterial works to be tangibly, tangibly experienced by an audience. What he really does is collect stories from artists, all sorts of scenarios, and then he brings an hypnotist that works on an audience, participants like yourself, to create a, a show in their minds. He would invite people from the audience to come on stage. He tests you first for the uh, suggestibility, how well you are receptive to hypnosis. And uh, once he decides that you are receptive to hypnosis, he would create a group of those, and then those scenarios would be uh, voiced by the hypnotist. And of course, the audience, as well as the, those that were selected to be on stage, are all undergoing a certain kind of a seance. Uh, the scenarios are usually uh, bringing examples of intangible experiences, things that you cannot really go through, something like memories of the future, taking you walks to places that you cannot really reach, uh, taking you walks in time to places before you, you have ever been born. So, for example, you should imagine going out of uh, Magazine 3, down to the port, taking a ship that carries you to the past, and so on and so on. So basically, you go through an experience, but this experience has nothing to do with objects. It's completely unmediated experience, as if the artist is now tapping directly into the nerve system of your brain and creating an exhibition in your mind. But there was no objects involved. So really artists that are working in this kind of almost direct manipulation of life, direct manipulation of experience itself. It can be frightening, but there's some interesting potential in this. From this, I want to move a little bit to um, Tino Segal. And I know, uh, I guess, some of you have experienced some of his work here in Magazine 3 and maybe in other places. I think this was in, uh, in Magazine 3. This uh, was exhibited in 2008. I talked to Ricard before, who uh, curated this show, which uh, included some of those phenomenal works, like This Is New, when you had a museum employee that calls out the headlines from today's paper. You have uh, another piece that was uh, this objective of that object, where you had uh, attendants circling the visitors and uh, creating an object for discussion. There's a famous work that I like that's called Welcome to this Situation, where you enter a gallery and then the attendants in the gallery suddenly form a circle around you and start to sing this Welcome to this Situation in a, in a singing voice. It's very frightening and you're just about to run away from the gallery because you're not used to being addressed in a gallery in this direct way. Uh, so you're just about to run out and then they suddenly start to recite aphorisms and little nibbits of critics from the history of art. And some of them may be well known, some of them are less known, and they form themselves in this kind of a tableau vivant into uh, formations that are classical art formations from paintings and sculptures that you might recognize or might not recognize in some, some kind of you know, universal subconscious that we recognize them as work of art. In another piece, uh, you had uh, going to a museum or a gallery and suddenly the attendants are circling around you with their hands in the air saying, this is good. Uh, <laughs> this is good, Tino Segal, 2001. Another attendant then comes, he's hopping on one leg, falls down, starts to twitch for no reason, stands up and then says, Tino Segal, this exhibition, 2004, courtesy of the artist. This is the situation as, they, as it's being rehearsed 
with the attendant. You had Tino Segal there, the second one from the left, and then the yeah, attendants. They're called also interpreters. They're really part of the work, but it's not really a performance. First, there is no performer. It's basically the interactions that are created in this space. There is no clear scenario for how those things would work. There's always a conversation that is developing. There's something about those experiences that are tailored made, so they are one of one encounter this time with you specifically as you walk into a gallery right now with this experience that you are now having in this situation. I recite in these sentences titles by Tino Segal, there are always this something which indicates in the very personal and very indicative way this occurrence right now, this encounter, what we are now discussing. One of the works that I, uh, I was part of as an interpreter was a piece in the, uh, in the Guggenheim in 2009, so just a year after the exhibition here. In that piece, the whole of the Guggenheim was emptied out, so it was all empty, and uh, the, it was a six-week exhibition, full one-artist exhibition in the Guggenheim. You had um, visitors enter, and uh, when they enter, they are greeted by a child who is around 10 years old, 8, 9, 10 years old. A really like little child with a big head, those kind of genius type of kids that are interesting. And they greet you with a the question. They say, would you like to follow me? As if in a kind of a fairy tale scenario. So now you can say yes or no. Say you said yes to this question and you walk after the little child who then carries you to one of those kind of like little squares in the rotunda. You have suddenly an opening of a lobby kind of an area in the rotunda. Uh, and then they ask you a question. They ask you, can you tell me what is progress? Now, this is a very banal question. This is a basic question. You might not be even interested in this question. You think you know the immediate reaction, I mean, what do you mean? Obviously, you know, I can tell you what is progress, but then you want to say something about this and then you get stuck a little bit because I don't really know what this thing is. I mean, this thing that I assume I know, I don't really know it. And then you make up something, you know, to cover for this lack because this is just a little bit awkward, this situation. So you need to say something and then you come up with something and then you hear yourself say it. And at the minute it's being said, you already feel a little bit distanced from what you just said because, you know, you don't really believe what you said. It doesn't really sound so good. But of course, you are in an educational role also. I mean, you need to tell the kid what progress is, right? <laughs> you need to say something that is, you know, positive in a certain way. You don't want to say, you know. So to so, so invent something positive about progress, and, and, and the minute you say it, it's very awkward. And then you're speaking to this eight-year-old kid, and uh, you don't want to frustrate him, and, and, and so on. And, uh, and then suddenly you find yourself enlisted to the mechanism of progress, this progressive machinery that you might not even be want to be part of, uh, uh, but you are part of it. This is about you. It continues from there. I don't know if we want to make this experiment. We don't really have too much time, but I think, try to think for yourself at least, you know, for, you know, 10 seconds, what would you say? What is progress? It's an interesting question. So to, just to place yourself in this awkward situation, should you feel a little bit of what the work is and how it works, how it directly shapes or manipulates experience, how it creates experience without having any object in mind still, and really, it's about you. It's not, there's no answer. There's no correct answer to this question. You do say something. The kids walk with you along the rotunda. It, walks, it goes upward in a certain kind of spiral. This is the structure of the Guggenheim. Um, as you 
continue and do a, a circle and a half, then you meet someone who's uh, an adolescent. The kid then transfers you to the adolescent person. The adolescent uh, is being introduced to you and they say something, uh, hello, this is, um, you should meet David. And David thinks progress is... And then the child would recite as much as possible from the answers you gave him before. And this is also a little bit weird because now you hear yourself recited by this child in this kind of secondary way. And that's being transferred to the adolescent person. The adolescent then takes you up another circle and a half up the rotunda. And he keeps the conversation going. And it's just about what you said before as much as possible and from then on. And, you know, you have a conversation with an adolescent person who's now, it's a very different kind of conversation. And the adolescent Lessons are interested in what they're interested in. You have your thing about that. And it's also a personal encounter. You get, you know, a person who is, you know, a man or a woman, this size, the other size, this color, the other color. There's a lot of interesting things that come up that are not even spoken, cannot be spoken, but they're part of the relation. And you woke up with them and you have an intimate conversation with them, which is more or less about what you think. The adolescent then departs from you in this kind of uh, intervention. There's someone who's then my age, and this is called uh, young adults. <laughs> <laughs> so young adults then meet you up uh, after you walked up and in, in a kind of an intervention. The young adult heard a little bit of the conversation because they were eavesdropping before in the conversation, no one actually noticed because you're so absorbed with the person you talk to, you don't notice someone is really following and listening a little bit. And then they kind of run ahead of you and then finds you from, get to you from the front and intervenes. They say something. It's anything that comes to mind. It could be anything. It could be a little story. It could be a question. It could be a joke. It could be, it could be a poem. It could be anything that comes to mind. It supposedly is affected by what you, by what you heard before, but not necessarily. You can just you find yourself facing with a person, you say something. Usually the visitor, uh, the participant visitor, uh, is a little bit taken back by this. It's, it's funny a little bit. Something, someone comes to you from the front, says something, uh, and they immediately get your attention. The adolescent re- just kind of walks back and no one notices that. And the, um, the young adult keeps walking with you having a conversation. And again, this is the conversation a young adult would have with you. It's a different kind of a life stage conversation. You really go through different life stages here where your life is being suddenly opened up to you in this kind of a, kind of a spectrum of experiences with their uh, you know, peculiarities, but really a spectrum of experience from being a, a young child to being an adolescent to being a young adult. And then at the very end, uh, you're being greeted by those would be 60 or 70-year-old uh, people. They're called uh, wizards. And they continue the conversation with you, usually telling you something like a life advice at the very end. That has to do with everything that happened before. And at the very end, depart and say, this work is called This Progress by Tino Segal, 2010. So there are many things I want to say about this example. I was trying to elaborate it more, more than the others because I think it's, it's really important for the life-art kind of connection. There are many things I want to say about this. First, there is this attempt to take conversations, you know, as a ready-made. 
in a kind of a Duchampian way. You know, suddenly you take not an object and place it in the museum. Uh, you take a situation that's a life situation, a conversation between two people, an intimate conversation between two people, and you place it in the museum. And this inframing of a life situation, once it's being inframed as art, because it's now in the museum, changes the conversation. It really allows for other things to come up. First, the conversation is free from purposes. You don't really intend to do something. You probably know you won't see the person any time in the future. There's nothing you want to sell or buy. There's no communication that's ideological. You, really, you can just go wherever you want here. It's really just about how free you are to go. You, you can just invent everything that you want or not. I mean, so you really discover how free or not you are in that kind of scenario, in that kind of conversation. But really taking real-life conversations, putting them in a museum, making the conversation a ready-made object. Now, when it works, when people truly let go and just have a conversation for the sake of having a conversation and not for anything else, it creates a certain kind of an ideal speech community. I cannot show you anything because Tino does not allow for any slides or any, any video uh, documentation of the work because it has to do with the real presence of an encounter between individuals. But uh, the whole museum is busting with conversations. You have you know, hundreds of people at any given moment having conversations going up and down the rotunda. Uh, so you have this kind of an uh, ideal speech community that is just having a conversation for the sake of having a conversation. In a way, I, what, what I try to kind of indicate here, and this is not, I won't go too much into it, is the idea of Habermas, this Habermasian idea of a public sphere, right? Which is for Habermas the very essence of democracy. Our ability to debate without a purpose, without an interest, without a norm, freely debate, rationally debate, uh, is the very, very uh, basic of where democracy begins. So to create a certain kind of a democratic structure, a democratic machinery at the heart of the city, a city which is really operating on the basis of a certain kind of progress. It really moves forward all the time, or at least it conceives itself in this way, that it moves forward all the time. Suddenly is moving around itself in a much more reflective manner so that it can open itself up as a society, as a community of speakers, as a community of thinking, experiencing, speaking people. I think in the conversations he had with Ricard here, uh, I heard the podcast from 2009, Tino was mentioning the fact that he sees himself working in the unfinished project of democracy. So art as part of a democratic, an ongoing democratic attempt to free up, to open up, to make possible equal opportunity for conversations and for experience. The way I think he explained it, I don't, I'm not sure if this is in this podcast or in another place, uh, is that uh, you, know, you had the, the, the story of art, a democratization coming to the 18th century and opening up the, the castles and the palaces and the churches for everybody else to enjoy, right? So not only kings and queens and royalty and archbishops, etc., could enjoy those magnificent objects of art, but everybody can get in. But the condition of us getting into those spaces is that we are allowed to get in so long as we don't speak. Basically, so long as we don't interact with each other. We can get in and shut up and admire those works, those great works of art. So part of the democratization of art now in the second phase is to open up those spaces, those same spaces, but to let ourselves feel ourselves as a community so that we can speak inside. 
I mean, speak our minds, speak how we experience things, speak with each other. In the more theoretical part of the work, I think this really answers to, to a very distinctive uh, sense of aesthetic being an autonomous field that is uh, somehow dislocated or disconnected from any sphere of activity other than for its own sake. So I elaborate on that, but I'll let it go in this, in this case. Um, but maybe a little bit of a point of criticism, which is something that I'm developing now that I think is interesting. So, of course, you know, I'm admiring uh, his work and I'm admiring works that have to do with uh, this connection between life and art. But I want to say a few words that might hint at a certain kind of a criticism of those kind of works as well. So to show the other side of this. First, what does it mean that we need to now place conversations in a museum? Or that our you know, free speech, ideal speech community can only exist by the protection of a museum. Because really, museums were meant to uh, preserve extinct forms, things that can no longer live outside of the museum. So when life becomes extinct or when it's endangered, then there is the motivation for the museum to collect it, to preserve it, so that future generations can enjoy it as well. So really, what does it mean now that we need to place conversations in the museum what does it mean about our ability to have a conversation outside of the museum, a free conversation outside of the museum? Perhaps that's in decline. Perhaps that needs a preservation. I think that there's a certain kind of a, a problematic aspect to this uh, motivation of, of placing real-life situations, real-life situations within a museum so that they can now really, really work as they should have outside, but not any longer, or that that is in decline. That's one line of criticism. Second line of criticism, I think, would uh, go towards the production of authenticity. I think one of the things that uh, Tino Segal's work create is a very specific experience of authenticity, of being really live, present, right now, with something that's very genuine and tailored-made. It's just for me. It is about me. I'm the object of this work. Right? It's, it's a little bit of a narcissistic, authentic experience that I get. And people really enjoy that. It, it's very pleasurable. When you walk, I mean, some people would walk into the Guggenheim and be upset by the fact that there are no objects, right? They paid, it's around $20 to get in. They paid $20 and they expect to see stuff, you know? And you say, what do you expect to see? You know, art. You know, those things on the wall, where is it? But after a while, they get the work and they get that this is about them and, and they are really flattered in a way. They get so much attention from different people and this could go on for two hours. It's amazing that you get all of this attention to yourself for those two hours and it's a completely tailored, made experience just for you. So I think there's, there's something about this kind of, a, I would say, illusion of authenticity those work might create, this idea that this is really just about me and I'm the very center of this work, this illusion of authenticity that is being replicated. It, it has to do with mass media consumption as well and how it works. This is the furthest stage that you might say mass media consumption now reached. So now we work in this, what is being called the experience economy. And the experience economy is selling you experiences rather than services or commodities or products. Right? So now, now, now what's being sold and what people really are looking for are experiences. And the most coveted, the most wanted kind of experience that we want is uh, what you can get an experience of transformation. An experience of transformation is something about the dimension of myself is being changed at this very moment in this experience that I'm undergoing right now. 
And so really, it's, it's a way that you say, well, it, it, Tino Segal and the line of artists that I'm working with here are, you know, coming from a very, I would say, anti-capitalist, anti-object-oriented perspective, but in a certain way that could be easily absorbed again by capitalism, because really what, what, what we want to buy is a transformation of the self, is this authentic experience of a transformation of the self. I thought I would mention a little bit... Uh, the show behind me. I don't know how, much, how many of you have seen the uh, Mika Rottenberg, which I think is a marvelous, uh, fantastic show. Because at this point, I think what Mika Rottenberg is also doing, that's similar in a way to what Tino Segal is doing, is uh, this uh, absurdity of overproduction. Uh, is being insinuated all the time. I mean, this, 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 she creates scenarios, those are video works, but she creates scenarios where you have a, a community of workers producing stuff that no one really needs. It's a production that is, is, is somehow showing itself as an absurd production. Those are human beings that are uh, in two capacities. They are both producers and the very product of what they produce. Right? This, is, this is humanity or life reproducing itself in this way that's both organic and inorganic. They are involved, you know, involved organically as a biological creature, involved in the production of an inorganic matter that's really the very part of them. It could be hair or nails, uh, rubber, those products that are like almost touching on the inorganic. So I think it's interesting in this connection to think about artists who are attempting to leave or to kind of like go beyond the production of objects towards the production of experience and perhaps even to the production of life, but in a way replicating structures that are really capitalist structures. So this is a bubble of criticism, if, if we want to elaborate on that. One little story I think that's interesting here, which is a personal disclosure. So I, I did tell you that, uh, that I was one of the interpreters in the work and, and so that I experienced it for the full six weeks, which is a fascinating experience and had a lot of time to think about everything that I now tell you. And it all began by a conversation I had with Tino Segal a year before that uh, uh, exhibition at the Guggenheim that I think is interesting for me. He, he somehow read a piece I wrote, which was about uh, philosophers who are walking and thinking at the same time, which is rare for philosophers, and I call it the walking cure. It's about people like Socrates or Rousseau or Nietzsche or Kant, whose thinking is very much integral to their walking. They had a walking regiment, and they talked about that many times. So you have books about that in philosophy. So I, I was intending to, I, was, I wanted to, to write this book about philosophers who are walking on the walking cure, which is a riff on the talking cure, is how psychoanalysis is being described. So the walking cue would be a certain kind of way of doing philosophy that is embodied. And it would have chapters about different landscapes, like the mountains or the ocean or the desert. It would have uh, chapters about different weather conditions and how that affects your thinking and your mood. So he read that and we had a really, he called me and we had a really good conversation. We met uh, in a coffee shop and at the time I didn't know Tino Segal and was really embarrassed not to know him because as the conversation grew I realized this is an important artist I should know about. But it was really, it was really a, a wonderful experience. He, he, he started to talk about his work and he would tell me about different pieces like the ones that I just told you about. And he, he also thought about what he would do at the Guggenheim. And he was interested in the walking cue because the Guggenheim is a walking piece, of course, you know. It has to do with us walking in a certain way. And so thinking about walking and thinking at the same time is something that he was interested in. 
At a certain point of this conversation, after about an hour or so, I realized that this person that I'm talking with, that's the only thing he's doing. I mean, he's not producing any other work than those conversational pieces or those kind of encounter pieces where he is intimately engaging another person. And that, in effect, I'm just now part of his work. That this situation that I'm now here with him at this coffee shop talking about the walking cure, that this very thing might be just one of those pieces that he can just now stand up and say, well, this work has, is called this something and you know just like <laughs> and walk out you know so that could be just like that there was something weird about this kind of realization i think which it, it was interesting for me because suddenly you you grasp yourself in the midst of life we're just having a conversation yeah i met this person for a question a very ordinary situation so in the midst of life being transformed into a work of art in this way so somehow he was able to inframe a certain kind of a living situation, a real-life situation, inframe it in such a way that there was almost like a light beam coming out from the history of art, shining on this very situation that we're now in, and now we are part of the history of art. And this situation I'm now in is in the grand history of art, one point, one interesting point. It's a way of thinking about how art transforms life or how life transforms itself into art while at the very same time remaining life. I mean, it's not then becoming something else than life. It is life becoming art at the same time that it is just art. And so if you think what was present in this situation was a certain kind of level of intimacy between two people who are having a conversation. But this intimacy wasn't personal so much. I didn't feel like, you know, we were like good old friends or like a family. I felt we have a really good conversations, the kind of things you might have once in a while with a person that you don't know so much. So it's not about your person and about personalities. It's more about this ability to connect to someone directly at the same time that there is an inframing of history that puts you up on a different level than, than just having a conversation with another person. So there's intimacy together with a certain kind of a perspective that comes almost from outside, is very intimacy, but does not disrupt the intimacy. It works together with it, is almost part of it. So at this point, I think I'm coming into more or less deep theory, more deep theory. This is the point I get stuck. I get stuck on the point of how you explain more, how do you describe this moment of life transforming itself into art at the same time that it remains just life. And uh, in, in my work, uh, and which would be the, se the next book, uh, I address it uh, with the help of Foucault and the idea of an aesthetics of existence. And I think that's an interesting uh, point of view that Foucault develops where he said we should develop practices of care for our living situation, for our existence. And this care would take life as a whole rather than one dimension of life. It would become a self-relation that would take life as a whole rather than just one kind of life and elaborate on it. And he goes back, and I think this is interesting for me to go back to the beginning of this conversation, he goes back to Socrates who really taught us, this is what Socrates says, taught us the care of the self. Socrates said, all I can teach you is how to care for the self. It didn't mean egoism. It didn't mean how you care only for yourself. He meant how to pay attention to your life in such a way that your life becomes an object of concern, in such a way that your life becomes 
something beautiful that you and others can enjoy. So this is one line of theory that I think I just want to place on the table, so if that will become part of the conversation later. And another one has to do with uh, Wittgenstein and what Wittgenstein says about forms of life and about our ability to suddenly recognize in this kind of flashlight situation that we are living and that our life has a form and that form is historically shaped and so that we can also transform it. So certain kind of moments that are in framing life as a whole and bringing the form of life into our attention so that we can now address it. Thank you. Uh, since your encounter with Tino Segal, has that changed your perspective on your own life, on certain situations, or made you more aware of... Uh, what kind of effect has it had on you personally, mm. maybe with examples? It, it had a major effect, I think. I think Tino Segal is, in a way, a paradigm shift in the history of art. You know, I, I take him to be almost like a Picasso in this sense. You know, he invented something that, after that, everything else changed. So a paradigm shift is, is this kind of shift where the whole history of art is changing backwards. Right? It's, it's not like that now I see works of art differently. Now I see the whole history of art differently. Now I see really art is doing that kind of thing that Tino Segal is doing before we even knew that that was what it was doing. Right? So, so forever, I think, art was not, is, is engaged in this kind of a, a transformation of life from within life itself, that this is what it's trying to do. And so I, I, I think you know, the way I now see art, the way I experience it as, is, is a, kind of a kind of a battle almost, a dialectical, I would say, contention between an attempt to uh, show life without being apart from life, right? To, an attempt to kind of like represent life, say, or express it, or imitate it, or enact it, or embody it in a way that does not dislocate it outside of life. So what they don't want to do is to become dead to life, which is, you know, what usually happens if you represent life, or express it, or embody, or enact it. You immediately take yourself out. So the paradox is how, you, how can you express life, imitate life, represent life, bring life to mind, right, without becoming apart from it. This fine line, I think, really changed how I see the whole history of art backwards. I can talk about personal things that happened to me because of that too, but it doesn't matter so much. I think, I think what I can communicate to you is, this, uh, is really this paradigm shift. And I think once, once this is experienced, it might just be now or in a different piece or in the future, once this is experienced, everything else changes without anything really changing. If you say... And I agree with you, of course, that the beauty of this kind of performance art is that you walk into a museum, there's no art, but somebody's paying an awful lot of attention to you. And it's human nature to be flattered. It really is. And where is the real in that? I mean, if you think of performance art, and I, I'll just say, and this is where I'll be an idiot, if I just think of some performance art, it can be much more personal than that. I'm thinking of Marina Abramovich's performance with the old woman scrubbing bones. And what she's doing is representing something that happened during the Holocaust. I'm not Jewish. I sat there and watched that performance and was extraordinarily moved by it and had a truly deep psychological connection with it. And a really meaningful way that 
I don't think I would have with a 10-year-old asking me what progress is and then giving me to a 16-year-old to ask me what progress is, to give me to an 80-year-old, which I almost am myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's not to say one's better than the other or, or what. I mean, it's just that that's... I, I like your argument. I think it's, I think it's uh, for the viewer, selfish to enjoy that kind of personal contact uh, because that's fleeting. I agree, and partially I agree, because you know, I did say that uh, there is this illusion almost created, this narcissistic illusion of someone takes care of me, or someone really cares about me. And uh, this is really about me. Uh, and, this, this is, uh, uh, and this illusion of authenticity also, that this is a really a unique experience, that only I have this experience, and only I can have this, I'm this unique individual, and so on. There's a line of criticism that I'm trying to bring in a little bit. I'm not elaborating too much, but I think it's interesting. It's really an interesting line of criticism to take. At the same time that I might say, probably... Tino Segal is aware of that as well. I mean, he's aware of the pitfalls of that kind of, uh, you know, like selling authenticity, selling an authentic experience. Maybe I'll connect it to the previous question about something that personally happened to me in that uh, working in that piece is that uh, I did realize, and I think it is a transformation that is still working in me, not just this uh, great experience I had, but a real transformation is the fact that you can have a conversation, a deep, meaningful conversation almost with everybody. I think that's something I didn't know before. I think I always encountered this fear, you know, that certain people I cannot talk to, I mean, there might be a barrier of language or culture or age or, uh, you know, different kind of background, whatever. I mean, you always think there are certain kind of people that you can have a conversation with and certain kind of people. And this is immediate. This is kind of like just instinctual almost, this kind of uh, reaction. The way it worked is that uh, we were shown the person that we are supposed to have a conversation with as they enter the museum. We were up there, I mean, few few rounds up. And we know there's the kid, and then we follow, and then there's the other side, and then we walk in. And so the minute they show us, I said, some people you don't want to have a conversation with. You know? Some of those people they like point at, at the very beginning as they enter, it's like, oh, fuck, you know? I didn't want to get them. And certain kind of people you were immediately like, happy that you get to have a conversation with. But it turns out that really your expectations are you know, wrong. Your instinctual kind of expectations are wrong. In a way, what I think I was un I underwent a kind of an aesthetic education that educated the senses and the body not to react immediately, instinctually, in a way that I'm habituated before, but to open up almost, to open up aesthetically. And that means, I think, profoundly from the senses, from the body, to open up aesthetically to an encounter almost with everybody without prejudice, without those kind of habituated prejudices. And I thought I'm, you know, I'm liberal and I'm open-minded and so on. But of course you realize that you have a bodily reaction to things. And, and this really is, is working on you from, from the ground up. And, and if you go through those kind of transformation, even if you didn't think so much, you didn't understand the work, you didn't need to conceptualize it or theorize it, something has changed. Do you think that uh, his art could happen without the capital, without money? Because uh, without without money, without uh, being financed or commissioned, or outside of the context of big galleries, I think I find a quite interesting paradox in in Tino Segal's art. Because as far as I heard, his piece, uh, a documenta, was the most expensive one. Really? Yeah. I mean, and it was without material, without any objects, and 
and stuff. So I, I found it quite interesting, and I, I have never heard anything from him directly, but I, I think you can approach his art from sort of dual perspective. You can either treat it as a very, very smart uh, acceptance of like the capitalistic reality, and basically using templates of this experience economy that you mentioned. And here I wouldn't see any, any shift, any paradigm shift happening actually, but more like a, a smart, organic uh, adaptation to the reality. But on the other hand, maybe you can actually treat his art as being very critical and showing us that, you know, uh, we reach that level of, I don't know, human, human development that we have to pay for having a conversation, basically. Mm. That's very good. I don't know what to say about the monetary aspect. I think maybe, you know, it's, it's really, I mean, the exchange process that has to do with uh, the institutional dimension of producing that kind of work is also part of the work. It really is an important part of the work. It really reveals something. Uh, you know, Tino Segal never uh, produces a document. Uh, he's against the production of objects, but also the production of objects that are based on the non-objective production that he's making. So there are no documents like photographs, there are no documents like written descriptions, um, uh, but of course he sells the work for money. And when he sells the work for money, this, this is a really interesting exchange. You know, you, you know this is, it's one of the most peculiar kind of exchanges. It reveals something about the economy, about the very end of the economy, of, of the very edges of how economic exchange work. I mean, it has to be done uh, in the presence of, uh, you know, it has to be with the handshake and he has to do it himself and he has to be present and transfer the work to someone who would then accept it because there's no written documentation or a photograph. And there has to be a notorian, I think, I mean, lawyers involved in a certain way, because, because how would you know, say, an institution would buy work, how would you know that they actually paid the money for something? What did we get, you know? That's like, that's like there's nothing here, you know? So how, well, maybe you stole the money, you know? Like, so you have to have someone who is a witness to this transaction. I think this is really interesting. I think what he's really doing is revealing something about the system of exchange. And Tino Segal learned economy and dance. This is the background. And so those two things are, I think, show, they show almost in every way. They come up in every way. Economy is the most basic system of exchange. It's an exchange of conversation. It's an exchange of experience. It's also an exchange of money. It could be that kind of an exchange as well. And also the dance part, which has to do with the body, the senses, the movement, the walking. Uh, and th those two things always come to, together in, in certain interesting ways. And somehow also revealing the paradox of, of economic, economic exchange. It really is about exchange. Okay, thank you very much.